On Subways, I think it's a story in most areas, but not all, of relative stability. That we have a very large higher education system, that we've hit 40% of 19-year-olds attaining or participating in higher education. But probably in the near term, domestic participation is not going to increase. Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. Welcome to the Grattan Podcast Channel. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan Institute, and today we're discussing the state of higher education in Australia. What exactly is it? Who gets in? What do they do once they get there? And what value does the higher education sector provide to students and indeed to the broader Australian community? To help us explore these questions, I'm joined by two formidable experts in the field. Gretton Institute's Higher Education Program Director, Andrew Norton, and our Higher Education Fellow, Itama Cherastadam. Andrew, welcome. Thanks, Paul. And Itama, welcome to you. Thanks, Paul. Andrew and Itama have just published Mapping Australian Higher Education 2018, the fifth in a series of Gretton Institute reports that bring together key facts and analysis about the sector. I want to drill into some of the detail of that report, but first, Andrew, could I ask you to provide us with a bit of an overview? First of all, why does Grattan produce this map of Australian higher ed? And what broadly does this latest edition tell us? So we've been doing this for six years. Uh, this is the fifth edition. And we did it because it's actually quite hard to find out some fairly basic facts about higher education that they are spread across uh, numerous different documents and often with no explanation. So it's hard for people to understand what's significant and what's not. And what what, what would you say are the main themes that emerge from this fifth edition in 2018? Well, in some ways, I think it's a story in most areas, but not all of relative stability, that we have a very large higher education system, that we've hit 40% of 19-year-olds attaining or participating in higher education, but probably in the near term, domestic participation is not going to increase. Research has had a very good period uh, up until fairly recently, but is now stabilising. Probably the one big growth area is in international education, which is uh, now a large industry in its own right, and as a result, uh, flowing into all sorts of other public debates around population and things like that. Okay, so when we talk about higher education, are we talking about universities? We're mostly talking about universities, but there are a lot of what we call non-university higher education providers. There are about 127 of those. They're only 8% of the overall market, but that's still a a reasonably important niche market. And domestic enrolments, flat, improving? Fairly flat. They've been improving uh, by a fairly small amount in recent years. So there are about just over 1 million domestic students. So 
Still perhaps one in 25 Australians is enrolled, so that's still quite a lot. And about 40% of 19-year-olds. That's right, yes. Okay. And international students is still a boom industry and a boom area in the sector? Yeah. It's, when we put out the first edition of mapping, it was actually in a, a down period. But shortly after that, uh, it started growing again. And in recent years, it's been booming uh, particularly from China and India. And have those source countries changed over the period, Andrew? They've changed a fair bit. So traditional source countries are places like Singapore and Malaysia and Hong Kong. And while they're still sizable, uh, they're now dwarfed particularly by the, the Chinese market. Talk to me about money. It's a huge industry, huge numbers of students, domestically and internationally. Where does the money come from? Who pays for higher education in Australia? Well, this has been changing over time. And even though the latest figures are not officially published, uh, my view is that international student fees are now the single biggest source of income for Australian universities, overtaking the previous biggest source, which was the Commonwealth Grant Scheme, which is the tuition subsidy program for domestic students. So. That is really a, a milestone moment in Australian higher education. Mm. And does that mean, as some people suspect, that international students get an easier run, that they get higher marks, that somehow or other they are discriminated in favour of on our campuses? Well, what we found is they actually get lower marks mm -hmm. and they are more likely to fail subjects than domestic students. Right. But we also report a survey of academic staff, which finds that a reasonable minority of academics believe that international students are soft marked. And the reason for that is that the universities are financially reliant on these international students. Mm -hmm. Very hard to unravel. Uh, the two, two bits of information of soft marking and lower average marks and higher fails are not entirely inconsistent, but it does seem that you know, overall international students are being marked down. Uh, and that's probably due to their English language abilities. Right. And research, you've said research is strong. Uh, is there more research being done in Australian universities than previously? And perhaps more importantly, is it good quality research? Certainly research outputs have increased enormously over time. Uh, in 2017, about 67,000 journal articles were produced, so you know, well over a 1,000 a week. Mm -hmm. So there's huge output. Nobody could possibly read it all. <laughs> Some of this must be of not great quality, but overall, Australian universities are doing quite well by most international metrics, including the most famous one, which is the Shanghai Xiaotong International Rankings. Uh, when this first started in uh, 2003, I think we had two in the top 100. Now we've got six. Mm -hmm. So Australian universities have actually worked hard to you know, build on their strengths and improve their research standing as well as the, the quantity of research produced. Now, Adam, if I could bring you in here, you have looked in particular uh, for this report at the data from the 2016 census to track some graduate employment and income trends. Uh, tell me broadly what the census tells us. Yeah, so the census told us that young graduates actually get, 
get less financial benefit from the education in the past. Um, so the premium for um, going to university actually went down by 8% for women and about 6% for men. Over what period? Over between 2006 to 2016. And that's in real terms. And why might that be? What would be some of the causes of that decline? Yeah, so for men, it's largely because their earnings actually dropped. Um, And the main reason for that is because they're less likely to work full time and also more likely to work in a job that doesn't require their degree. So there was a little thing called the global financial crisis that uh, intervened during that decade. Is, is that evident in these trend lines? Yeah, so we did actually see a, um, a drop in the new professional number of new professional jobs being created in mm-hmm. 2008 slash 9 and also another a bigger one in 2013. And that's kind of causing the um, increasing the backlog of graduates, if you like, um, in trying to get a full time job and also professional and managerial jobs. But I thought one of the most interesting things you discovered relates to women graduates and their job prospects and their uh, indeed their income uh, trends. Yeah, absolutely. So for young female graduates, their earnings actually has gone up. Um, the reason their premium has gone down is because the earnings for um, school leavers have actually gone up even more for, for women. Um, the, re- the main reason why the um, female graduate earnings has gone up is because they're actually more likely to be in the workforce. So they're more likely to participate in the workforce. And the main group that actually created that or, or, or drove that change is the, um, the women with children. So we did see that the women, for women without children, their participation is largely flat. But for women with children, they increase their participation. And that's mainly because more of them actually remain in the workforce and go on maternity leave. And this would be partly at least driven by government policy and industry policy relating to maternity leave? Yeah, we believe so. So there are a few changes that occurred during that period. So the the kind of the longer term change was actually because of more um, paid maternity leave became more available from employers. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a longer term social change. But there's also the, um, in 2011, the paid parental leave scheme became available to most women. And there's also a change in 2008, which was the um, the increase in childcare um, subsidy, which meant that more women can go back to work, more women with children can go back to work and afford childcare. So we're seeing it in the figures and in the census and in this latest Grattan report that these policy changes relating to parental leave and childcare are having a real impact in the labour market. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 the thing that we also find interesting is we think that it's probably going to be that is going to continue. And the reason for that is because the mid this year there was a change in the um, in what you know in childcare subsidy. So mm-hmm. there's new childcare subsidy scheme, and um, that makes um, that made childcare more affordable. Okay. And what about um, the differences between the courses that one takes at university. Am I going to be better off taking particular courses? Yeah, so what we saw is that nursing and education did particularly well. Um, The earnings grew for both men and women, especially for women, partly because of their participation. Um, What the two disciplines that did 
particularly badly are science and commerce. Um, the I guess the the interesting about science is because their outcomes deteriorated while their enrolments actually still grew. So we've got a mismatch here between demand and supply. Well, I, I see it as a mismatch in information that's available to students when they choose courses. I guess. So that's been a trend for some few years now. Yeah. People have been encouraged to take the science courses. And at the other end, there are fewer jobs for scientists. Yeah, so the the proportion of them actually getting a, a job that requires a degree has dropped significantly over that period. So for male graduates, it's gone down by about 10 percentage points. So one in every 10 male graduates is actually not getting the job that they would require their qualification. Andrew, what do we make of that? This is a um, policy failure or a mismatch, is it not? I think it is, and indeed the last edition of Mapping looked at you know, the STEM labour markets in depth and really found the simple fact is there are too few jobs requiring a science degree to justify the number of science students that we have, mm. yet successive governments going back to the, the Rudd government in 2007 have strongly encouraged people to do science. And so I think this has been a major public policy mistake and has left you know, many people with degrees that aren't leading them to the jobs that they would have liked to have had and often aren't leading them to good jobs at all. Through the course of this exercise over now uh, six or eight years, um, is that one of the biggest policy failures you've been able to identify or how, where else? Are we getting higher education policy right? And where else are we getting it wrong, Andrew? So I think that was one of the mistakes. And this was partly facilitated by a policy I support, which is the, the demand-driven system of, mm. higher edu of funding undergraduates, which basically removed the historical caps on student numbers. And so we probably wouldn't have had science grow so much if we'd had the old system. Like the government would have expanded the numbers because that was their priority, but it wouldn't have expanded as much as it actually did. On the other hand, we see other sort of positive trends. For example, uh, nursing was one of the biggest growth areas, and it was also an area where there had been historical labour market shortages. Mm. And so Australia for a while had been very heavily reliant on migration uh, to, to you know, staff its hospitals. So that's one of the things that has been corrected uh, with the demand-driven system. Mm. Unfortunately, the demand-driven system came to an end last December. Mm. So effectively, in my view, unless this changes, uh, this will kind of freeze 2017 in time. This won't be a near-term disaster because we have dealt with most of the skill shortages and demand has been fairly flat since 2015 anyway. But over time, what we're teaching will become more and more out of alignment with both what students want to do and what employers need. Right, so employment demand will be less able to be met because of the end of the demand-driven funding system. That's right. Okay. So um, it's been a time, as you've both mentioned, of great change in the higher education sector over recent years. Does the end of the demand-driven uh, funding system mean that that era of change, even of revolution, is over, Andrew? 
I think it does mean that because it's not just, I think, that it's frozen now, but it will have broken the confidence of universities in mm. government policy. And so you would be a brave vice chancellor to start something big and radical or new if you think some government is just going to take away your funding on a whim. Mm. And so even though Labor is promising to bring back the demand-driven system, if they bring it back with its previous vulnerabilities, it may not work as well as it did first time around. Why is the system being frozen? Is it simply a matter of finances? Yeah, it was simply a matter of finances that the government did actually want to keep it. Uh, they tried to reduce per student funding in order to make their financial savings. Uh, that was rejected by the Senate late last year. And so they went to this alternative and they did it because this is actually something they can do without going back through the parliament. So it was driven purely by what was legally possible and not by what anyone thought was good policy. And I don't think I'm going out on a limb here to say that there's the prospect of a change of federal government early next year, Andrew. Uh, you say that Labor promises to reintroduce demand-driven funding. Should we be confident that that would happen under a shortened government? I think we can be reasonably confident. And part of that confidence is that it probably will not grow enormously in the short term mm -hmm. because demand has been fairly flat anyway. Uh, the key school leaver demographic, we know that's flat from ABS statistics. And therefore, at least over the forward estimates, the chances of another boom are pretty low. And right. therefore, the chances of a big blowout in costs are also pretty low. Well, thank you, Andrew, and thank you, Itamar, for your expertise and your insights today. And thank you to you, our listeners. If you'd like to read Andrew and Itamar's report or any of their previous reports and articles on the state of higher education, head to our website, grattan.edu.au. You can start to date with all of Grattan's news, reports and events by following us on Twitter at Grattan Inst or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or a review. Thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.